Open up, if you have your Bibles with you, um, can you open up to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Let me see if we can get things set up here with electronics and all the gizmo that are happening this morning. Okay, so two days from now, September 11th, we'll be commemorating 17 years since that day when we all remember where two planes flew into the World Trade Center. And it's one of those events in life where you can remember exactly where you were. Am I right about that? We can all place ourselves on that morning. And I was in my home, Kim was off uh, with Santa Barbara Christian School on a retreat. And I remember getting a call and at 6 a.m. or, or 5.50, I, I had the TV on, the kids woke up and we watched it. I just remember it, it, was, it was a life-changing moment for us personally and for our, our country, for our nation. And, um, you know, it was that day that there were many, many stories about heroes. Uh, but because we're close to this commemoration uh, two days from now, I want to share with you a particular story about a hero. The first building, the plane had already hit the first building. And those that were in the second building started to load into the elevators trying to go down. And there was a, a, a group of four bankers um, in Arm Armani suits that got into the elevator, the second building on the 58th floor. And also, a window washer got into that elevator. And they were in the elevator and they started descending and then all of a sudden the second plane hit their building. And all the lights went out. And when the lights were out, you know, the, 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 the bankers uh, began to get on their phones and call and try to find out what's going on. And the window washer had this idea and he took his, uh, his mop and he put it in, in, inside the, in the elevator in the door and tried to wedge it open and he, and, he, and he gets it open and he realizes that they're on the 52nd floor and the, uh, the bankers are still trying to find out what's going on and not really paying attention. He remembers that on the 52nd floor there was a men's bathroom that was being remodeled. And so he takes his mop, which is broken now, and he starts hitting against the drywall and he finds a hollow area and he actually opens up that hollow area and he works on it and he gets a one and a half square foot area open up and he climbs down under the sink in that bathroom. He brings the guys in the Armani suits with him and takes them down into the bathroom, takes them into the hallway, down the stairs, which was smoky, got them out of the building, and every one of those men were out of the building before it collapsed. And you know, you think of that story and I think what's remarkable is we often think of, no, it's the people that are the, the CEOs or the executives, they're the ones that figure out everything. 
And yet this is a situation where a window washer intuitively figured out what needed to be done to save some men and get them out the building. And I bring this up because I just think it's interesting. I've been in corporate America for 35 years, and the way that corporate America works is, you know, we often, um, you know, see the, the, the pyramid of, of the kind of the top-down structure. And this, this top-down structure, we have the CEO up at the top, the president, and then we have the window washers at the bottom. And we often look at that structure and we say, well, it's the people that make the most money, the people that have the most influence, they're the ones that not only make the decision, but they're the ones that can shift things. They're the ones that have the vision and the leadership to carry things out. And I think it's interesting, uh, someone who added to this particular one says, no thanks, it looks like a pyramid scheme. Um, but when I think about this window washer and I think about these executives, and, I, and, and the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God operates, what's interesting is this top-down, climbing to the top, getting to the top of our careers, getting to the top of the roles in the church, is not what Jesus ever brought to this earth. Jesus brought what I like to call an inverted kingdom. Jesus took that, that hierarchical structure and he turned it upside down. And when he turned it upside down, he wanted to be clear why he turned it upside down. And he did because at the bottom, he sees himself. He said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. I am the servant of all. And I will serve from my place, and we will have a hierarchical structure that will move up. And so we listen to different passages in Scripture where it says that the last will be first, that the least will be the greatest that he who is humble will be exalted, that the, uh, the poor will be rich. And, and we, we, we read about these inversions that are going on in Scripture, and what Scripture is trying to tell us is that the kingdom of God is an inverted kingdom. And when we find that out, we, then we can begin to look through a different lens in the way that we not only look at the kingdom of God, but we look at the church. In, in the Old Testament, we find that there is a hierarchical um, organizational structure. We know that because we have Moses who goes up to the mountain to meet with God, one man, and he gets the Ten Commandments, he gets the tablets, he brings them down, and of course, the people down below are not doing what they're supposed to be doing in their jobs. And so he breaks those tablets, has to go back up again. But what we see is God has chosen in the Old Testament in that model to speak through one man, and that one man speaks through others. So we have a hierarchical organizational chart. Later on, his, his uh, father-in-law Jethro will make it really clear, Moses, how do you work a hierarchical organizational chart so that you can basically counsel and judge two million people? But I find it to be interesting because when I think of the kingdom of God and I think of the Old Testament and the New Testament in music terms, the Old Testament is much like an orchestra. Where is he going with this? 
orchestra has a conductor who runs the entire show, the, and the orchestra, the conductor uses a score that has been written by someone else previously. And the conductor conducts the orchestra, but in the orchestra we'll find that there's chairs one, two, three, and four. So we'll see there's a hierarchical organizational chart within an, or, within an orchestra. And I believe the Old Testament, in the music that was made while it was great music, it was an orchestra. It was an, a hierarchy because it was looking forward to something that would come beyond the orchestra. Here's the New Testament model. The New Testament model is a jazz band, and when you think about a jazz band, and you look at these guys, these guys, they don't have any music. They begin to play, and at one moment, if the saxophone is feeling the energy and feeling this, you know, the, the, the vibes, he begins to rise up and takes over, and he ends up leading at that moment in time. And then he steps down, but that's called in a jazz band being in the pocket. Once you're in the pocket, you've got it, you're leading it. And it's interesting to me in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, that Paul had this in mind when he said, one brings a song, one brings a hymn, one brings a tongue. He was saying, God is creating an egalitarian structure. A structure where there will not be just one person at the top. There will not be some celebrity person leading, but there will be a plurality of people that I will gift and I will empower and I will raise up and there'll be a moment where they'll say, I'm in the pocket right now. And the rest will know because they will sense what the Holy Spirit is doing. Within the church, um, unfortunately, even though we're egalitarian, we have hierarchy all over the church. We have the fingerprints of corporate America all over the church. We always see the pastor leaders at the top, and I don't think that that's necessarily unscriptural, that pastors are at the top, leaders are at the top. But it's interesting to me because I look at Pastor Bob, and I look at the incredible gifts that God has given this man. And I think, you know, with him becoming pastor and him being part of the American Baptist, um, you know, uh, church, congregation, you know, there's got to be questions that come to him like, well, Bob, now that you're pastor, uh, what's your vision? Because we really want you to cast your vision into this church. And uh, I told Bob I'd bring this question up. Because I really believe that what Bob, the, the reason God, Bob has been brought here to this church is because Bob is a unique egalitarian. He's a facilitator, and he wants to recognize the gifting in the church, the talents in the church, and he wants to see how God in a jazz band can raise up people, use them powerfully within the church. When I was in a church back in the early 80s that was, was very much hierarchical, very much of a Moses model. I remember the pastor saying one time, he said, I believe that all the gifts of the Spirit need to come through me first, and then they will get dispersed to the congregation. And, and I remember going, oh, okay, that sounds good, because there's not much work I have to do. But it, it, it was a corporate kind of concept. It all has to come through the CEO. It all has to come through the head person. 
And I believe again in the inverted kingdom that God has put forth. The model is egalitarian. And also it's a model where those who are in leadership are going to be underneath and building up those who are in the congregation. When we look at Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Let me give you a picture of how you could see this. Back in World War II, there were aircraft carriers, and on those aircraft carriers, there were 5,000 men, and there would be 100 pilots. The job of the crew, the 5,000 men, was to get the pilots equipped and get them off the deck and get them into the war. When we think about the church today and we think, well, who are the crew? Who's the crew and who's the pilots? We automatically move to, well, of course, the pilots are the pastors, evangelists, apostles, prophets, teachers. Those are the pilots. They're not the pilots, they're the crew. Because it's the job of those, that fivefold ministry, it's the job of that fivefold ministry to equip the church, to get the church off the deck, and to get the church into the battle. And the problem is, for some time now, in the evangelical church, we have seen that, that those that are the window washers like me, right, aren't coming up with good enough ideas that we're not really looked at, and so we don't become equipped and we don't get sent out. And I would say that it's not the, the issue of the pastors again, it's the issue that we are a jazz band. And we have to look at our lives differently. We have to look at that, that, that there is an instrument that God is asking you to pick up. And when you begin to play that instrument, that instrument has never been played that way before, since the beginning of time. But God has created you uniquely so that your instrument will be used powerfully for his kingdom. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take this inverted kingdom idea, and I want to fill it up this morning and show you how we are called out into the world to change this world that we live in. And I'd like to use it as an example, just uh, 12 guys that are... window washers. I like to call them the dirty dozen. When Jesus chose his guys, it's interesting, he didn't choose religious leaders. He didn't choose the top of the organizational chart. In fact, the, back at that time when a rabbi was looking for those that he would mentor, those that he would disciple, and he's looking around, and, and it would be those who knew the Torah, those who had memorized it, and those who had gone through some years of education in the Hebraic system. He would look for the, the, the ones that were the best of the best of the best. These men were not the best of the best of the best. These were common, ordinary men. We know that at least five of them to seven of them were fishermen. One was a zealot, which back at that time, a zealot would be a guy who would have a curved knife underneath his garment, and he would be ready at any given moment to pull it out and stab a Roman soldier. 
there was a tax collector that was in the bunch. The tax collector, you know, would, would mediate between the Romans and the Jews, but typically he would be picking in the pocket of his brothers and sisters. If these two guys met on a road, one of them would probably kill the other. But Jesus, one great afternoon, is walking along the shore of Galilee. And I love the fact that he walked past these men during working hours. He didn't find them in the synagogue. He didn't find them leading a Bible study. He found them at their labor. He found them at their work, and he, and, and he walked past them. He didn't even stop, but he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't just want us to follow him. Jesus wants us to step into the most intimate relationship we could ever live with a radical revolutionary. And so he walks past him and he says, follow me and uh, I'll make you fishers of men. And what I love about that is he said, I'm going to leverage you as fishermen. I'm going to leverage you into a, the supernatural and you will fish for men. You know, there was a point where God, said, God asked Moses, Moses, what do you have in your hand? And Moses had a staff. And God was saying, let's start with what you have in your hand. Let's start with the basics and we'll go from there. And so Jesus takes this motley crew no one else would take. He begins to develop these window washers. And I just want to give you the end of the story and then we're going to back up. But the end of the story is these 12 men, of course, Judas, you know, moves on. They replace him. But the 12 are known later as those who have turned the world upside down. By 250 AD, 12 has grown to 25 million followers of Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I want to talk about what are the elements of being world changers, and let's look through the paradigm and the prism of this inverted kingdom and the lives of these men that were simply window washers. So I want to talk to you about five elements that unlock the favor of God and the transform culture. And the first one that I would like to talk about is the idea of talents. I've been, you know, in, in, in church circles for 35 years, and I, I often see the oppression of talents. I often see, well, those are natural and carnal, so we don't pay any attention to those. I believe that everything that is in your hand has been given to you by God, and I believe everything that has been given to you by God has an anointing on it that God wants to leverage and use for his purposes. So the first we look at is this idea of what are talents? Well, talents are God-given attributes that you receive at the moment you're born. You step into that, and that means that God is going to gift you with certain talents that will be developed over time. Malcolm Gladwell in one of his business books talks about the fact that a talent needs about 10,000 hours of practice and at that point it can be perfected. 
But you know, you may be someone who God gave a, a talent with your voice. And you're practicing and you have developed your voice over time. Or maybe that, that God has given you a talent with an instrument. And through the years, you've used that, that, that talent and you've grown in not only your appreciation, but your, your talent in that particular um, instrument. Maybe an ability with a sport. I was never given this, by the way. I was never given the, Kim was given an amazing ability in sports, and that's why she has a uh, broken ankle right now. She was trying to surf down in Newport Beach. Um, but, I, but I know people who have a gift that is a talent in linguistics, the ability to learn languages. I meet people, once they learn one, they go to two, and they have, they, they have five languages that they know. And I keep telling them, I'm still learning English. And you can learn all these languages. Those that are life coached, the, the ability to counsel, the ability to, to, to come alongside and give objective uh, um, criticism and counsel to people, or an artist, or perhaps a vocation. Some of you are in vocations here. And in those vocations, you, you, you were called into it, and then as you began to develop it, you saw that you liked it. You, you desired to grow, and in that particular talent in your life, you've now come to a place where it's mastered or it's perfected. Proverbs uh, tells us, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. And I love this because it tells us that in the works, in the skills that God has given us that are anointed, that are given over to him for his glory, he said, I will raise you up. I will bring you into those places of influence where that particular talent can be used for my glory. About um, 40 years ago, Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade, and Lauren Cunningham, the founder of YWAM. They were having lunch. They had a lunch schedule. And both of them were in their rooms, and they heard from the Lord, and they got a download, a revelation from God. And when they met at lunch, they both had the exact same revelation. And that revelation was that in the last days, what God will do is he will come and move and influence culture through seven spheres of influence. Seven spheres of influence that, that ultimately didn't just become spheres of influence, but they became mountains. And they, they're known as the seven mountains. And this is something that we see playing out in, today because these mountains are the mountain of economy or business, government, family, religion, media, education, and arts. And when you look at these mountains, what's interesting is we look at the mountains of culture and basically what they heard from the Lord is whoever controls the mountain, whoever is at the top of the mountain will control culture. And so as an example, we look at the religion mountain, we think, you know, what is happening in the religion mountain and who is God raising up within that mountain with natural talents in that mountain to bring gifts and to bring glory to God. But I'm gonna take that to a different level. The family mountain. You know, we have mothers here, and we have grandmothers here. How many of you have ever thought in terms of, we may be raising up the next Billy Graham? We may be raising up someone who will just 
influence culture in a way that we've never seen before. And so when we move into the family mountain, we see what's happening to the family. Every culture, the Roman culture, when you look at the, the, the deconstruction of these cultures, it began with the family unit. And so in the family mountain, we're called to step in, to step up, and called to take that mountain. And we look at these other mountains that are mentioned here. And as an example, we look at the mountain of government. Um, some of you know our friend Rob Dayton. Rob Dayton works at the city. He's a senior planner down there. And he's been there for many years, I think like 12, 14 years. And he's influencing the culture of our city. He's in the midst of an extremely liberal culture, but he's one of those that God is raising up that mountain. How many here are teachers? And you look at the education mountain. You know, what's taking place back here a couple days a week now is a homeschooling. Teachers are there, and they're raising up these young people. But education is a mountain that God calls us to move up. And so the question in the talents really comes down to you know, what is the talent that God has given you? What are the talents God has given you? And how are you developing those talents in your life? Because just like the parable, if you put it in a handkerchief and you put it in the ground, you're going to waste the very gifts and skills that God has given you. So the second one I want to look at is this morning is the one on gifting. Talent is, is something you're given at birth. Gifting, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that come upon your life are given after your rebirth. And why do I say after? Because the gifts of the Spirit are given at a point in time where Jesus brings the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon your life. That can happen at conversion. It can happen like it did at the, in, in Ephesus where Paul said, hey, do you guys... Um, receive the Holy Spirit, and he goes, well, we didn't even know what the Holy Spirit was, but we're, we're believers. He lays hands on them, and they begin to speak in tongues. They get, they get baptized in the Spirit right there. So we have many examples in the book of Acts where there is the second work that happens, and that second work is the work of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So spiritual gifts are really a layer over the talent that God has given us. And we need to recognize that they come really in a super-powered way. They come in a supernatural way. And as God brings the gifts of the Spirit into our life, God wants us to recognize that those gifts come from Him. Because James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or turning. Meaning, God is going to distribute gifts into your life that are useful based on how God is desiring you to be used in this world. And so the Holy Spirit distributes those gifts and we receive those gifts. Um, the other thing that's wonderful is in Romans eleven twenty-nine, 29, it says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That means it isn't based on how good of a job you do with the spiritual gifts. They cannot be taken back. What God gives you is for you and to be used in your life for the edification of the church and for the edification of others. So with that in mind, I want to just share with you uh, nine gifts um, that are in the, um, we find in the New Testament here. 
there's about 26 spiritual gifts, but these are called the charismatic gifts. These are the gifts of power, and the first three are related to revelation, a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and discerning of spirit. And I think what has happened in the church is we have greatly complicated the gifts of the spirit to the point where much of the church says, well, this is the point where I fall asleep during the sermon. But, but, but these are powerful and needed gifts in each of our lives. What is the word of wisdom? Solomon was actually anointed by the Holy Spirit with the word of wisdom, meaning that he could look at a situation and not just give someone advice, but he could move them from where they were to the point where God wanted to take them. He gave them a word of wisdom. Have you ever received a word from someone and that word just bears witness in your heart and then it, as you live it out, you see that that word was from God? It's a word of wisdom. A word of knowledge is often used in healing. And I've traveled to many different third world nations and just seen many, many, um, many window washers, let me put it that way, who have literally laid hands on people or they've got words of knowledge and, and they may get a, a pain in their body in a certain part and they call out and say, is there anyone here that is having um, a pain in their wrist right now God wants to heal you. And they say it, someone stands up and there's this agreement that takes place and through a word of knowledge, that person gets healed. And you ask your question, ask the question, why does God want to do that? Well, just because God is, has extravagant love and wants to heal people on this earth. He wants to touch their bodies. He wants to do miracles in their lives. The third one is discerning of spirits and understanding when, when the enemy is present in a situation. And why is that? Because the calling on the church is to cast out demons. And so when a demon has some level of possession in a person's life, then we can go in and take the authority of Jesus and we can cast out that demon. So there's a discerning of spirits and understanding that there are demons and how to, and how to carry that out. And then the three power gifts, the gift of faith, working of miracles, and the gift of healing. Um, when Peter and John went up, in Acts chapter 3, they went up to the gate of beautiful. And they're walking up there. They had passed by this guy many times, I'm sure, but he was begging alms. And, uh, and Peter looks at him, and there's just this locking in with their eyes. And, and, and Peter says, I don't have any money, but in the name of Jesus. Then he puts his hand down, and he pulls him up, and he says, rise up and walk. And the man began to leap and praise God. What happened in that situation? I don't think it was just a, a good idea. I believe what happened was a gift of faith. I believe that Peter walked up and there was so much compassion in his heart for the healing of this man. As he looked at him, he spoke to him and he took action and guess what? Heaven joined him. And you go, well, wait, wait, wait. Doesn't it all have to start with prayer and then we get a word and then sometimes God is just so excited about how excited you are. God wants to heal people, but your compassion brings that gift of faith into that situation. That's how the gift of faith can operate. And then the working of miracles, and that's really uh, Romans 4 that says that he's the God that calls forth the things that don't exist as if they do. And that's another one of those brain teasers for us, right? But that just means that Jesus was one who would take things that were in the supernatural, in the kingdom, and he would pull them forth into reality. 
And that means we know there's peace in, in the kingdom of God, and we know that he's out in the middle of Galilee, and the disciples feel like, you know what, we're going to die here, and Jesus goes up and he grabs and he calls forth heaven, and heaven brings peace. And this is the idea of miracles. And then the gift of healing. The gift of healing is simply, if you, uh, John Wimber, who, who started Vineyard, said, it took me, I prayed for people 1,000 times, and then I began to see people get healed. And you're going, man, that's a, that's a lot of work, right? But the gift of healing can come because it's a desire in your heart to see people healed and also that you activate it and you step into it and you speak healing. Pete Engel is a good friend of mine, but for 15, 20 years, Pete and I have prayed over people, many, many people who have been healed completely and many people who didn't get healed. But what's amazing is that we both came to a point in our walk with Jesus where we said, you know, we're tired of not seeing people, we're tired of not seeing people healed. We're tired of people being sick. What is it that we can do? We can do the works of Jesus and we can bring healing. And I want to say, you know, all of this is not dependent upon you becoming at the top of the church and becoming a pastor. It really depends on your willingness to become a window washer. It really does. Because Jesus says, I look for those who are in the low places. I look for those who walk in humility. I look for those who, like Peter, came to the conclusion, okay, uh, wash my entire body, Jesus. Whatever you want to do, I'm in for it. I'm up for it. I will sign up for it. So then we move on to the utterance, uh, uh, inspirational gifts, and these are the ones that cause so many issues in the church. The gift of prophecy. Bob Ryan, I've known for, I don't know, 20-some years, 25 years. And as I've seen Bob, when he begins to enter in, I believe Bob's in, the, in, the, in Ephesians 4.11, I believe that he sits in the office of the prophet, and I believe that when he prophesies, God begins to foretell what he wants to do. And that's one of the reasons why vision in this church will come out of some of those gifts that will rise up in the jazz band. Prophecy is simply telling someone what God's saying to them, and what God wants to do in their lives. It's, it's, it's always positive, it's always a blessing, and it's a, it's a gift that 1 Corinthians 14.1 says that this, you should desire this gift and pray for the gift of prophecy for your life. And then divers kinds of tongues. Don't you love that word, divers? Divers, time, it means various types of tongues. So here's a real quick lesson on the gift of tongues. The gift, there's three types of gift of tongues. The first we find in Acts chapter 2, when they come out of, of Pentecost, when all of this is happening and they're going outside and they're speaking and other people are hearing it in their own language. Okay? The second type is, is the personal language of the gift of tongues. And that simply is you praying to heaven and the Holy Spirit interceding when you don't know how to pray. Romans 8 will instruct you in that. When there's groanings in your heart, you don't know what to say, you begin to speak in tongues. And, and, and I believe, this is my belief, I'm not saying it's the church's belief here, my belief is that anybody who desires a gift, like the gift of tongues, a personal gift, the Lord will give it to them. And you'll say, well, well Paul said, not all speak in tongues. It doesn't mean not all can. And so I believe this is a secret weapon for the church that as we learn to pray in tongues, if you look at some of the ministries that are going on in China right now, when they have people coming off of heroin addiction in these Pentecostal churches, 
they put him in a room as they're coming down off of, the, off of this addiction, they put someone outside of the room to speak in tongues 24 hours a day. And they keep shifting it. And what happens is they're finding that people are getting completely healed, completely delivered. Why? Because God has chosen a strange language for you and I to speak in order for us to have a new way to communicate with him. So the next one I want to take a look at here is the, is, is the idea of the element of passion. And uh, I want to show you this. This is a definition that came from Bill Hybels on passion, but he says, holy discontent, what wakes you up in the morning agitates you and drives you to forward to pursue your calling. Passion is a part of this inverted triangle. And that is, what are you passionate about? What do you stay up at night thinking about in the world that needs to be solved? What do you think Moses, what was Moses' holy discontent? Anybody know? He had two million people that were in captivity. And so Moses, every night, is groaning and praying and getting up every morning, Lord, will you release these captives? And God heard the cry of his people, but God matched that with the cry of a man who felt called and a man who had passion. And I believe that if we see passion in the church, it will absolutely transform the world and transform our communities. But the problem is that we often don't see that. The problem is that we see, we see a lack of passion happening in the church because we have become comfortable as pew sitters, I'm not just talking about this church, I'm talking about any church in America, we become comfortable just coming and hearing a good message and walking away and living our lives and coming back to another message next week. And you're, I, I hope you're seeing something here that I'm calling you to, this morning to pick up an instrument. I'm calling you to join a jazz band and realize that God has equipped you, God has given you everything you need in order to be part of that jazz band. The other problem with passion is it's often misdirected. And let me just share. Moses, on his first go-around, right, with passion, how did he do? He didn't do so well. He killed an Egyptian. And he had to go out in the wilderness for 40 years. He had misdirected passion because it was not in alignment with God's timing. And Peter, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers come, and Jesus, what is, I mean, um, Peter pulls out his sword, right? So we know he has a natural gifting, right? Yeah, but used in the wrong way. Pulls out his sword, cuts the guy's ears off. Jesus has to go back and replace. So Jesus has to replace your misdirected passion. And often for men, that's anger and ambition. It's misdirected. We think we have a right to be angry. We have a right to demand things. We have a right to be entitled. But God would say, that's misdirected passion, and I'm going to have to put the ears back on the people that you're speaking to. But passion is powerful and needed in the life of the believer. You know, my concern about passionlessness in the church is the fact that I have seen during my lifetime movements that have been so powerful and so breathed by God, and I've seen those movements turn into monuments and then turn into memorials. And I believe that there is an opportunity here in this church for God to release 
passion into our lives in such a way that we're just going to begin to play with those instruments. We're going to begin to see the power of God come and the change happen in our city. The next one that I'd like to discuss is, is the sphere. So talent, gifting, passion, and sphere. And sphere is really simple. It's in old terms, do you guys remember what a Rolodex is? Yeah, the older ones, the ones that stood up as seniors remember the Rolodex, right? But it's basically, what is your network? What, what are the concentric circles of your network and people that you know? Because my guess is that you know at least 500 people in your network, probably 1,000 or 2,000, some people 5,000 or 10,000 in their network. My Facebook, I, I, I know 2,800 people, right? And I'm intimately aware of probably about 12 of them. But the fact is that we have these growing networks and we have this growing opportunity for influence. And the way that Jesus looked at this is when he spoke to the disciples, and this is before he's about to ascend, he says to them, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And he says, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He's showing them a graphic. It's a graphic of Jerusalem in the center, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. He, he's showing them this concentric circle of how he's going to send them out. And what's interesting is when we get to Acts chapter 6, these guys are not moving, and so what does Jesus do? He brings persecution on the church, and it scatters them to the uttermost parts of the world. Why? Because that's the vision that God has. And so when we look at the concentric circles, I want you to think this morning, what is my Jerusalem? What is the Jerusalem that God has called me to? And I would say that will be your home, your workplace, and your city. And what is happening in your sphere of influence? God is saying that I have put these people next to you, living on both sides of you, at the grocery store, in the workplace, at the schools. I put them there because you are to influence them. What would it be like if you went to Vons today and you're in the checkout line and you know that, that little separator that you have and you know how people are always kind of working the separator a little bit, you know, to get all their stuff on if they're coming on the back end of it. What would it look like if you're right up at the check stand and someone loads their stuff on and you take your bar and you move it all the way to the back and say, it's on me today? What if you were in Starbucks and you were in line and you said, I'd like to take care of the next three people in line? What would happen in our sphere of influence if we actually connected with the very people that Jesus has put in our path? It would change the community that we live in. So ask yourself that question. What is my sphere of influence? And then the last one we're going to take a look at here is assignment. The assignment of God. And, you know, this one really takes in that funnel the talent, gifting, passion, sphere, and moves to the idea that there is really, truly an assignment that comes from God to his people. We look at Jesus first, and what was his assignment? Luke chapter 4, it says that I came to preach the gospel to the poor, right, to heal the brokenhearted, to give sight to the blind, to declare the, you know, the release of captivities, the year of Jubilee. Jesus had a call, and it was a general call upon his life to go out to heal the sick, to preach the gospel. He gets to John chapter 17, and he says, I've completed the work you've given me. And then Jesus has a specific calling 
in assignment in John 5, 19 and 20. It says, I do nothing on myself but only what I see the Father doing. So Jesus would wake up every morning saying, Father, what is it that you're doing today? Who do you want to heal? Who do you want to touch? And, and, and the Father would connect him into that assignment for that day. So where does that leave us? Well, I think that, first of all, the general assignment on the church is out of Matthew 28. And it's a verb, and it's an active verb. It's a verb that says, go, therefore, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So every person who is in the family of God is to be making disciples, just as Jesus made them. So that is the, the calling on the church that we are to make disciples in the same manner that Jesus made his disciples, in the same manner that he went out and said, I'm going to find window washers that I can bring in and I can develop. And then what's the specific calling? Well, John 14, 12 says, Jesus says, the works that I do you will do also, and greater works will you do because I go to the Father. Jesus is saying, you know, I, um, I healed some people. I um, went to a few hundred villages, or a few hundred square miles of villages. I um, raised a few people from the dead. I cast out some demons. But the works I do, you will do greater works because I go to the Father. So think in terms of what could that assignment look like in this city? In Goleta, Santa Barbara, and Carpenter. What could it look like if literally God began to just release assignments on us and we moved out into those assignments and did the works of Jesus. That's his desire. And, and here in 1 Corinthians, it, it says, as God is distributor assigned to each one, as the Lord has called each one, let him walk. So God is calling us to walk in that assignment. So as we close this morning, I want you to think about this as a funnel. Some of you are going, it's almost lunchtime, I'm thinking about funnel cake, but funnel, okay? And the idea that, that God has given you talents and maybe some of those have not really been developed like a muscle and God is saying, let's identify and develop those. The gifting of the Holy Spirit. I will say this, that there are enough people in this church who um, have walked in the gifts of the Holy Spirit that if you say, that's my desire, you will have people laying hands on you, walking with you, speaking with you, and sharing with you how can you step into this Pentecost experience that the disciples had that empowered them. And then passion. What is the passion of your heart? Allowing God. Some of us have let our dreams die. Some of us have shut down. And God wants to bring an auger in and begin to drill down in your heart and open up that living water. And then the sphere. We all have very similar Rolodexes here in Santa Barbara. The standpoint that together we could literally reach this city, our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then looking at what are the assignments that God has called us to. 17 years ago, on Tuesday, two planes went into towers. And it changed our nation forever. On a daily basis, the enemy is sending planes into your towers. The enemy is desiring to destroy you. He's come to steal and kill and destroy. 
And we often think, well, the enemy's not as active anymore. And I would say, no, the enemy is subversive, he's covert, and the enemy is moving in our city, he's moving in our homes, he's moving in our workplace and our schools. And God is saying this this morning.